<clears throat> so, some of you know, um, I, I leave occasionally during the summer and have opportunities to go and be in some unique places. And uh, our trustees had gotten together and said, we want you to continue to do that. So I've had the privilege to do that over the last couple of years since we launched Church at the Red Door. I was recently, uh, this last week, I was with a very dear Jewish friend of mine who's not yet a follower of Jesus. Uh, and yet, Laura and I have had the opportunity over the last number of years. He was a kind of a high-level guy in the Bush administration. He's a Washington, D.C. guy. And, and I actually know him from Aspen, Colorado, when I used to be the... Uh, one of the pros there, the director of instruction at the Maroon Creek Club, and and so he's a he's a he's a dear friend, and he's been exploring this whole Jesus thing. And then this last week, something really grabbed me because we were having the conversation, and he said he made this statement. He says, "Well, I've been watching, you know, a particular guy on TV," and of course, the first thing that hit my heart was, "Oh, you know, because <laughs> you can get all kinds of things on TV, right?" I mean. <laughs> Get some, you get some really solid teaching. I was, I was hoping, you know, be Charles Stanley, be Charles Stanley, something like that. <clears throat> and he said, it's, and he named the name, and I won't name the name, and he said, it's just always really positive and uplifting. I get a lot from it. It helps me with my business and, you know, really makes me optimistic. And, uh, and as we kept kind of exploring, and I realized that he had uh, negated just, you know, the simplicity of the cross and that the necessary thing. And so in some ways, Christianity, at least at this point in his mind, is, is great if you can use it kind of as a positive thing, a spin to help you in your life. Now, some of you even in here maybe say, well, Jesus does help me in his life, and he does. But the foundations of this is a deep understanding of his mission, and his mission was to come and destroy the works of the devil. The Bible's clear about that. And so how did he do that? Well, he did it on the cross. He nailed these ordinances that were hostile to us, Paul says to the Colossians, he nailed them to the cross. In other words, the law that had, because the law brings wrath, the Bible says. We're going to talk a little bit about wrath in the context of the continuing story with David. The law brings wrath. Well, what is wrath? I mean, it's kind of an archaic, barbaric word, isn't it? Wrath. I mean, wouldn't it be nice to have a church called the Church of Wrath? Or the church of the God of wrath or, you know, something like that would, you know, just really attract the masses, wouldn't it? And yet the Bible's very, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about God's wrath and what that means and the implications for us. And I'm going to make this statement to you this morning. If you will go deep enough to start to penetrate and understand, first of all, what God's wrath is, you will have a much, much deeper appreciation for Jesus. <clears throat> Some say, I don't want to hear anything about a wrathful God, a God of vengeance, and all that. Give me a break. If, and some people would say, well, if man's going to create a God, he should create a Charmin kind of God. You know, the, the, the harps and the, you know, being up in the clouds and generous grandfather Santa Claus type God. If you're going to create a God, and some people would say, well, man's just created God. There is no such thing as God. I'm a materialist. If you're going to create a God, create a God that just accepts anything that you do. Unless somebody does something to me. And then I want him to take out his wrath on that person. That guy who's suing me or that person who abused me or that, maybe that person who raped me as a child. I want God's wrath on that person, but I don't want wrath for me. And we don't use that word wrath. And so it's a strange term, <clears throat> but it's important. And if you will understand, have a deeper, deeper theological understanding of wrath. <clears throat> Jeff Hopper, one of our COO of Lynx players, a dear friend of mine said, he read a study one time. He said, at any one given time, 
about 40% of the pastors around the world, they've done this, are preaching on the almost exact same thing at any one given time. Now, that's an amazing thing because obviously I'm not very plugged in. Occasionally I'll listen. I've got a few guys I like to listen to. But I am very unaware of what other people are preaching. And I already had this sermon and I met with two of my dear friends yesterday, Colin and Amy. And Colin told me, well, we have a dear friend from our church, our pastor, and uh, he's preaching on wrath. And I just, in, in the back of my mind, I kind of went, oh, that's interesting. Because, <laughs> I mean, I've, I don't know that I've ever actually spoken on wrath, the wrath of God, you know. And that's why, by the way, you didn't receive a little snidbit in your email uh, this week about Jeff's going to be preaching on the wrath of God. We're looking very forward to seeing you at Church of the Red Door. <laughs> Or, oh my gosh, I brought some friends today and it's their first time and I can't believe, and now you're preaching on the wrath. Oh God, this can't be happening and you're hiding your eyes. Well, I think you may be surprised. You may fall more in love with God because of his wrath than when you walked in. But we're going to need some help to do that. By the way, even the church at the red door, you say, what, what is the church at the red door? The church at the red door is out, out of Exodus chapter 12. It's the blood. Uh, Robert down here has the hat on, you know, it's got the little swash of blood on the top and it's a picture of the Passover, you know, apply the blood to the doorposts of your house so that you can be passed over. Passed over from what? From God's inevitable wrath. So even though we're not called church of the God of wrath, implicitly, in some ways, we are cognizant of God's necessity to judge because of his perfection. God's very nature is so holy. See, one of the fallacies that we fall into is that we think God's like us. Well, here God is asking us to, you know, forgive, and he can't just forgive us. I mean, have you ever had that? I mean, you're God, you're Christian God, and you, know, you forgive one another. It doesn't matter. How many times did we forgive? Seven times 70. But then your father, Jesus, you say your heavenly father has wrath, and then you tell us not to have wrath. Well, which is it? Well, we're not God. See, we don't understand even, we don't have any concept, and you've heard me say this before, we don't have any concept of who we are dealing with. We were listening to a song on the way here this morning, and Tess, I said, what do you think of that song? She said, that's really an awesome song. It's one of my favorites, and I'm going to do a series probably in November just about the creation and how, and, and again, I'm not necessarily, it's not about a literal picture, but I certainly believe in a creator, a creator. How long, however long he took to create the world, I will tell you the cosmos, he spoke into existence hundreds of billions of galaxies, and yet we deal with him flippantly as if he is some kind of Santa Claus God up there. We don't know. His very nature demands the idea of wrath. And as a result, we all deserve it. I do. I, I'll speak for myself. I don't care how holy or how wonderful you think I am. I am or, or not. Some of you know me better than that. Uh, and I strive towards holiness. But I will tell you. I will, I will tell you that there are so many areas of failure in my life, so much pride and, and angst and different things that I see in my own character. Even though I've had 25 years of walking with Jesus, I still see things in my character that I go, that stinks. That is not anything remotely like Jesus. Jesus, I want to be more like you. I deserve wrath. I know I do. Intuitively, I do know that. Even people that say they don't even believe in God, intuitively know, they know that God, intuitively, they may have talked it away, but intuitively they, they, they feel a sense very often of guilt. Even if they're a materialist to say, well, there's nothing except for just stuff. 
So how does this fit in with David? Well, I was concerned with my dear Jewish friend in Aspen when he said, I love this Christianity stuff. It really helps me in my life. And I thought deeply. The word wrath, in the Greek, it's, uh, the Greek word is orge. But in the Hebrew, it's, there are many different terms that are used for wrath. But they all seem to imply one thing. It's a passionate, passionate, emotional response to something that is definitely wrong, that is unrighteous, that's not right. Now, let me just say this. We say, well, God doesn't have that. But let me tell you something. Do you want to worship a God that is not passionately responsive and indignant and furious about someone raping a child? Do you want to serve a God that's not passionately indignant and furious, yes, furious, and emotional about someone breaking into your house and stealing the stuff that you worked so hard to have for your family? Or you don't think you don't want to serve a God that's not passionate about someone that's hacked your computer, stolen your identity, and now st- and and caused you thousands of hours of you know, trying to repair your good name and, and your creditworthiness and all that, and then maybe even stolen from you on behalf of that. You don't want a God that's not passionately, emotionally responsive to that? Or do you just want, well, you know, God's just a loving and forgiving God. God just, that's the point. God in his very nature is so different from us, so radically different. Look, I realize that I can see wrong in others, but the difference is I know I am also wrong. It's easy for me to forgive others eventually as I come to Jesus' teaching when I, when I understand the depth of how much I've fallen. If you struggle with unforgiveness, you're still not in touch with how much you have been forgiven. You don't understand the gospel yet. People who struggle to forgive other people are just not in touch with their own their own deserving of wrath from God. They just don't get it. Well, see, when we go through the story of David, and that's what we've been doing, there is a tendency, and I wanted to bring balance. This message this morning is very much about balance, a balanced view of God, because when you see the message of David, the story of David, you see, as we saw in the last number of weeks, that he was complicit. Well, he, he murdered a guy indirectly, but he murdered him. He, he called the hit is what he did, just like a mob boss. And then he tried to cover it up after having committed adultery with the guy's wife. I mean, it doesn't get any worse than that. And that's where I left you a number of weeks back. doesn't get any worse than that. And yet he said, and yet he was a man who repented and everything was made right. And that's true. And this is the atonement. This is, this is what God does. He forgives us. We love that about God. I'm here because God forgave me, and I hold tenaciously to the fact that even though I have been a failure in so many ways, that God loves me as an adopted child, but not without a cost. See, we must see the other side of that because there's a tendency to say, well, David, look at David. I mean, David was a mess, and I'm a mess, and he loved David, so he loves me, and you just, we just go on about it, and we talk so much about the atonement God making everything right and forgiving us that we also fail to realize 
that God's wrath is still upon the deeds of the unrighteous. And when we commit these things, as we see in the life of David, we, look, I'm not going to go into the fullness of the story, but let me just give you a brief rundown of the consequences of what happened to King David. But we know from Deuteronomy 17, do not multiply wives for yourselves. When you have a king, because you're going to ask for a king, and I'm going to give you a king eventually. This is way before. This is the time of Moses, 500 years before they had their first king, who was Saul. Don't let the king multiply wives. And, he, and they did. Both Solomon and David did as well. David multiplied wives, and as a result, he had all these different wives. He had different sons from different wives. Well, Amnon was one of them, and I tell you what, let's, let's back up, stop for one second. Let's skip forward to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, there's a little out of tune here, guys, but I want to do this. 2 Samuel chapter 12, if they can pull that up for us. 2 Samuel chapter 12, <clears throat> and I want to look at this, verse 7. Because we, if you'll remember, we, we finished with this. Nathan had confronted David with his sin and said, you are the man. Remember he told him the story about the guy who took the little lamb and he had all these other sheep of his, but he saw his neighbor with one that he wanted and he took it and David was furious. He was indignant. He was full of wrath. And then Nathan the prophet turns to David and says, you're that man. I was just using an analogy. You're the man who stole the one wife that's one of your guys who loves you and is out serving in battle for the nation. And you took his own wife. You're the man. That's where we see it in verse 7. It says, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been too little, I would have added to you many more things like those. Now, we skip that a lot. By the way, did you catch that? Now, David, incredible things happen in David's life. I mean, we're still talking about King David. Jesus came on the throne of David. David was part of the Davidic covenant. I mean, amazing things. We're still talking about David. David has a high place. But did you realize there was more in store for David in his life than he was able to walk into? I had a lot more things like these for you. But you've compromised it because of your sin. See, this is the flip side to atonement is still consequence. Are you with me on this? And we're going to see that very clearly. He is forgiven, but he's going to suffer powerfully from the consequences of his sin. Sometimes you say, well, we think God died for us and he died for the consequence. He died for the eternal consequences of your sin, yes. But could there be anybody in here that could say, well, I am, I'm exempt from the consequences of my sin. We're all living in some ways through the consequences of sins we've committed in some way, whether it be idolatry or something, putting something before God, and we're suffering from that. We may even be unaware of the, th the ways in which we are suffering today because we put God down here and we put work or money or sex or whatever up here in open rebellion to God, and we're suffering the consequences of that. And if you're in the middle of something like that right now, I would just tell you, like I tell me. Some of you hear me say this, I'm, hey, you know, we enjoyed that this morning. I said, well, I'm just talking to myself up there, and you get to listen in. Some of you have heard me say that. I mean that. I am up here talking to me. Because when I see something, the Holy Spirit's touching some area of my life, and then I'm not complicit with it. I'm in open rebellion to his direction for my life. And I have to continuously turn the spotlight back on me. That's what the word does. 
because I'm smart now. Smarter than I used to be. Not as smart as I will be, but smarter than I used to be. I'm sick of the consequences of not listening to God's daily voice. I'm just tired of it. If I'm selfish, if I'm self-centered, if I'm vain, if I have other addictions or whatever it is, I am tired of the consequences. I'm tired of it. This strikes me. I would have added to you many more things like these. What mistake here? Are you struggling with unforgiveness here this morning? You could be compromising something God has for you. You could be closing a door through unforgiveness, a door that you could walk through, and God says, look, I've got so many blessings, so many unbelievable things for you in your life, some things I want to do through your life, but you're compromising it because you're not listening to my voice. I had many things, David, like these, but you just, you just you've compromised them now. Boy, that grabs me. We could just finish right there and go home. I mean, just, you could, you know, just, I had so much planned for you. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? Do you realize when you sin, you sin primarily against God? Yeah, you sin against other people, but you primarily sin against God. We have to begin to see our sin. Well, you know, God just forgives us. You know, I can do this. I'll plant my wild oats on Saturday night and pray for crop failure on Sunday morning. You know? I mean, sometimes we have that feeling. I've, I've walked through that. Well, God's a God of forgiveness, so, and I really want to do this right now, even though I know he didn't want me to do this. So I'm going to go ahead and do it, and I know he'll forgive me. Boy, that's a dangerous place to be. It's a dangerous place to be. I Just saying this, let me just tell you something. Just by saying this, this, this will revolutionize your life. Every time that you fall into something you know is not in alignment with God's word and his perfect plan for you. Why? Why does God give you his word? Because he wants life to flourish. Right? Does this cause flourishing in your life or does it bring death? You sow to the flesh, you reap death. You sow to the spirit, you reap life. It's unbelievable. God wants you to flourish. Just saying these words, God, today I rebelled against you. If there's an area of your life that I and I and I do fail often and I get back up and I ask for repentance, first John 1 9, you know, I ask God to forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I'm I, it's just an ongoing we talked about that. We did a sermon on that early in the plane of this church. We called it a, a lifestyle of repentance. I want to live in that place where I'm very sensitive to the Lord. But I've began using these words and it changes the way I think about God and his holiness. When I say today, Lord, rather than, oh, forgive me, you know, I, you know, I kind of had a little lapse there, Lord. I like to downplay it. Don't we all like, well, you know, I, I really couldn't have helped myself. You know, it was just an instant response, kind of the way I am. We, we write it off. I don't say that anymore. I say, Lord, today I openly rebelled against what I knew you wanted for my life. Will you forgive me? And as I start using that kind of language, it changes the way I think about God's holiness. It just does. Today, Lord, I openly rebelled against you. Jeff, why are you preaching this? Man, preach this a good message, an uplifting message. We, the world's a weary, dreary world out there. We need a little encouragement. This is, trust me, this is the essence of encouragement for you because you'll fall in more in love with Jesus once you understand God's holiness. Said you've struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife. You've killed him with the sword of the sons of uh, Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword, catch this. 
Now, therefore, David, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have what? Despised me. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Do you think David ever once would have said, today I get up, I despise the Lord? David was so passionate. Remember, we just saw him not long ago dancing in his underwear when the Ark of the Covenant was ushered into Jerusalem. He was the one that wrote all these beautiful psalms up on the side of the mountain. I mean, this is David. This is the David that was so humble that he could have killed his adversary Saul, but he felt, he felt guilty. His conscience was so tender, he felt guilty for even cutting the edge off of his robe in the cave. This is David, and he said, the Nathan then says, you've despised the Lord. This gets back to what I was just saying. Now, now that, that, let me tell you something, that frames sin in a very different way for me. When I sin and I openly rebel against the Lord, and I, I say, today I have despised the Lord. I mean, if I told you that, you'd say, what are you talking about? Get out. I can't believe you said that. This is what Nathan said to David. Now, put it in that context, this is a different kind of thing. I mean, this is a different kind of thing. than Well, you know, boys will be boys, and, you know, you just, I had a little fall today, but I'll, I'll do better tomorrow. No. Address it for what it is. Open rebellion. And you've taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. Notice, this is what I will call wrath in time. Now, the Bible's full of places, uh, Revelation for one, that talks about eventually there will be the day of wrath. As a follower of Jesus, I am completely and utterly forgiven with Jesus. I am clinging to the old rugged cross, right? I'm with him. I get standing before God. I'm looking for Jesus. I'm with him. And I hope Jesus turned and said, he's with me, Right? Jesus said, many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, look at all the things we've done. And I will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Matthew chapter 7. I want Jesus to say, he's with me. He's my son. He lived for me. He loved me. He had faith in me. He wasn't perfect. And we're not talking about perfection here, folks. But it's relationship. You with me? It's not about religion. It's about relationship. You hear that all the time. And here, here Nathan is saying, look. The Lord says, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. That actually happened. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will now do this thing before all of Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also, catch this, has taken away your sin. You will not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you will die. And then Nathan went back to his house. Now, two things happen here, and this is important to catch, about our sin. You know, we're going to see this in First Peter in a minute. This is a place where Peter says, look, you still need to live in reverent fear of the Lord. It's a strange duality, isn't it? 
in some ways we're supposed to, he's our dad and we love him and we can go in in some ways and jump on his bed and just, you know, dogpile him in the morning. I mean, there's, there's an intimacy in that because he says, Abba, Father, that's like daddy. That's, so there is an analogy that's appropriate and yet he's so holy and so powerful and so, I mean, he spoke the creation into existence. We cannot take this with this, uh, it's kind of flippantly. We can't do it. Two things happen here. These are your consequences. The sword's not going to leave your house. The sword is going to be in your household. Well, back to the story. So he has his son Absalom, who, by the way, is like the most handsome guy in the whole nation. I mean, this guy is, I mean, he's an Armani model up on the billboards on the side. I mean, he's that, you know, flowing hair and this just macho, manly man kind of guy. Not not needing to wear tennis shoes because he's got crippled feet, right? I mean, this is a real man's man, Absalom. Then he had another brother, a half-brother, Haggith is their parents. And, and, and so Amnon began to have night sweats thinking about his half-sister, who was Absalom's actual real sister, with, and, and, and there it was. And it's like, oh my gosh, you know, who, who's, I, I'm in love with this girl half-sister. So he had a horrible counsel from friend, and friend says, well, you know, just pretend that you're sick and ask, ask your dad to just bring in your sister to help take care of you. And then when she gets into your quarters, well, you know, then we'll see what happens. And, and the Bible doesn't mince words. He raped her, raped his own half-sister. And then he was so disgusted after the fact that now at least he can bring some, you know, bring her in in some way. And then he rejects her and hates her and kicks her out and won't have anything to do with her. Absalom hears about this. Waits two years. Waiting, waiting, waiting. Waiting for the opportunity to take his half-brother Amnon down. And he did. Now, through this process, can you see this kind of... Sometimes, uh, as Swindoll talks about at times... It talks about sometimes evil can arise outside the home that comes against your home, right? There's going to be some, there's some powerful elements, spiritual elements out there that want to come against your home. Those are bad enough, right? And those we can stand as a family against. So I think about, you know, Laura and the girls and our immediate family and Laura's parents. There's, there are factors that come, and then even as our church family. There are factors that will come against our church family from outside, and those will be tough, and we'll stand against it. But there's nothing quite so insidious as the sword arising within your house, evil arising within your house. Are you with me? Some of you may be, hey, you know, boy, have I experienced that. I know some of your stories, right? And you have experienced great trauma. Maybe you're experiencing great trauma right now as a function of a consequence of something that happened. Now, we need to understand this is not a brutal indictment of every evil that ever happens. Sometimes evil comes from without, not deserved by you, as is the case with Job. I mean, that was not inspired by Job, but evil came against him. So we cannot look at somebody else that's going through a struggle or a physical crisis or something and put blame on them. That's not the point of what we're talking about. What we are talking about, though, is that God's wrath the consequence. Now, in some ways, you might call these natural consequences that God didn't prevent, and in that way, it could be considered God's wrath. Did God actually have to go down there and bring this, 
Or did he now just not protect David from the natural consequences that would occur in his own household? I don't know, to be honest with you. But I will tell you, Galatians 6 is pretty clear. You can argue with it. You can say it's stupid. You can say, I don't believe in the Bible. I think this is all a bunch of you know, nonsense. As a man sows, so shall he reap. Now, the world's not going to call that reaping and sowing and not give any credence to the biblical narrative here. They won't do that at all. You know what they'll do? Karma. Uh, you know, what goes out will come around, you know, what goes around comes around. We hear these little statements, all they're doing is giving definition experientially to what the Bible clearly articulates. Now, we can also think of that only negatively, but that's also true positively. There are some people out there that are doing what? That are doing some beautiful things for the Lord. They're planting, some of you, you know, I, I, this Calicento Ranch, I, I don't know if I pronounced that ranch, but the ranch, Calicento Ranch that uh, some of you went, I was talking to many of you, the, uh, the Groves, and, and my wife and Tess went, and Nani, and, they, and I know there are many others, and, and Joyce, and, and all, many of you went and participated in that. That's sowing into people's lives, man. You're going you're gonna to see a crop from that. That may not be, that may be not why you did it, but you will see. You sow financially, you're going to see, see a crop. You're, you, sow, you sow love into, in, into someone when they deserve wrath, you're going to receive, eventually you're going to see love back. I mean, it's going to manifest in its life. You sow it, you're just out there planting. So today, you're just out there planting, and, and the crop's going to come up. The crop will come up. Does God cause that, or does he allow it? To me, it doesn't matter. The crop comes up. And it's all, in some ways, a picture of God's indignation and his passionate stand against that. Why? Because it does not lead to human flourishing. That's important to understand. So this whole idea of the cross, see, the cross only makes sense now in light of God's wrath. See, the cross is where mercy, and we're going to talk about this next week, the duality of this. How, how we must understand that God is a loving, compassionate, incredibly long-suffering, forgiving God. The Bible's clear. But he's also holy. And he stands against everything that comes against your flourishing and the flourishing of those around you. So he gives you, by definition, his law to expose and then draw you to the Spirit, and then He leads you by His Spirit now into the new covenant so that you can now lead into human flourishing, but you've got to be attentive to His voice. Are you with me? So the cross was the place where God's perfect justice met, kissed, if you will, His love and compassion and mercy. Mercy and justice kiss. They come together on the cross. Who wants to hear that? In, who wants to hear that in a culture like ours today? I mean, come on! It's a stupid, barbaric notion of the cross. That is so stupid. Substitute. I remember reading Christopher Hitchens years ago, and his uh, the uh, well-known atheist. He's dead now, um, and he wrote the book "God Is Not Great." And he said, "Look, I don't need a God, and even so, even if there is a God, I certainly don't need to send Him Son and then give Him over to the hands of you know some." people who crucify him ostensibly on my behalf. I don't need all that ridiculousness. When are we going to push beyond and move into the modernity where we can finally push past this old, barbaric, ancient, you know, ridiculous concepts 
of substitutionary death and all this other nonsense, when are we going to push beyond that and move into real civilization? So you start talking about the cross and the and blood. I mean, a church that has blood on the on the on our thing. I mean, what kind of church is this? Church of the red doors? That's weird. First Corinthians chapter one. First Corinthians chapter one, if you will. Go to verse 17. Paul's talking to the church at Corinth. They are a mess. They're, they got all kinds of, they're just like, they're any human being that comes to Jesus. We're just a big bunch of mixed bag, you know. They have parts of them that are loving God and worshipful and things like that. And then they've got other parts of them that are just so flesh-driven and so selfish. And so, you know, is it any different? I mean, and yet, listen to what he says. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, not in the cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Now, what is Paul saying here before we go to the next verse? What is Paul saying here? I don't want to make void the cross. It's easy to take this message because you can, boy, you can go to the Proverbs. I can do message after message, week after week after week. And I can tell you how God, you know, and somehow God is just this cosmic, slot machine of sorts that if we can just come up there and just pull the right lever then the blessings will flow out on us and and he's a god that cannot lie and and he makes all these promises so everything's about god's promises and us living in to get his blessings if we listen to his promises and there's truth in that but you can get so clever in your speech you can start philosophizing and and all of a sudden, what you're really doing is feeding an impulse that really is your own impulse, which is, I just want to have a great life down here. And everything's about me and my life and my money and my business and all this other kind of stuff. And so I'm just going to be thinking about God's blessings all the time. And, we can just, and then all of a sudden, we're just like, oh, yeah, by the way, I, I li- we're talking about a God of extreme holiness. Verse 18. For the word of the cross... It's foolishness. Now, there's probably never been a time in human history that the cross seems more ridiculous to a culture than ours. Really? (laughs) Come on. Give me a break. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the very power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise... And the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world, what? Through its wisdom, didn't even come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Now we'll stop there. Look, the cross is just stupid to most people. It just doesn't make any sense. And, and tragically, and by the way, this would be the defining line between what some would call liberal Christianity and then evangelical Christianity. The primary dividing line between liberalism within the church is the necessity of the literal death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And it, all it does is it, it, it parades as Christianity, liberalism does, but it denies the power. And he goes on to talk about that in 
following verses. It denies the power of the cross. See, the cross is where, again, justice and mercy kiss. Where God can demonstrate his great love for humanity, while at the same time without compromising his own integrity. God's not double-minded. He's got to be just, and where there is justice, there must be retribution. There has to be. Otherwise, everybody do their own thing, and we'd never have anything called heaven, would we? What would heaven ever be anyway, other than just a continuation of the fallenness of earth? There has to, things have to be set right. But how do you set something right when everybody's guilty? Well, I'll love them so much that I'll, I tell you what, I'll, I'll take the punishment myself in the form of my son. Now, do you start to see how much you're going to fall in love with Jesus the more you understand the depth of the righteousness of God and his necessary wrath as a byproduct of his righteousness? That Jesus took the brunt of that for you? Or do you want to go it alone? I'll just take my chances. I'm a pretty good guy, pretty good gal. I've, you know, I've worked most of my life. I'm not a bad person. You can't read this word very long and recognize that, and not recognize that you are separated from at least God. Now, maybe relative to your neighbor, you're doing pretty well, but relative to him, he's something other than Lee. That's, we've talked about that. That's what holy means. It's really other than Lee. So what happened with David? Here's the consequence. But here's the mercy. Here's the necessity of my wrath. Sword's not going to depart from your house. And it, it, it even got worse from there. Amnon, Absalom, Absalom ends up killing Amnon. You know, there was another conspiracy after that. You know, right after, you know, David died, Adonijah right before he died actually Adonijah rises up claims to be king and it was already given to Solomon and then Adonijah has to be slaughtered and you know there's just it was can you imagine living in that household how how these wives now I see this on tv sometimes they even have these shows now on polygamy how you know sister wives or something they call it sister wives or something on television how this all works out let me tell you something my, my wife rolls her eyes every time that show comes on let me tell you it doesn't work out didn't work out then it won't work out now there's a lot of dysfunction and it was never God's creative force to say it's good that man not be alone I'll give him 10 wives because that would just be a curse on the women right <laughs> it would be one man a woman bring them together Ezer, they're going to be a helpmate they're going to be they're going to reflect my glory together it's going to be an amazing thing so do you feel like ever you're just flying down the road and, you know, people are trying to get your attention? You've maybe heard of something like this before, but you just can't. I, I'm, I'm fine. I'm doing fine. I'm, I, I'm, I'm fine on the road I am on. I'll be fine. Don't worry about me. But you don't know what's coming up. You don't know what the road holds for you. I'm going to bring a little levity to the message on wrath of God this morning. Everybody see Steve Martin's planes, trains, and automobiles? Uh, tell me if this isn't you spiritually this morning or somebody you know, or maybe, maybe you're even on, maybe you know Jesus, but you're in the middle of an open rebellion to God right now.
Let's watch. the race. Don't race. That's ridiculous. All right, come on. Let's go. Let's go. Put your window down! You want something? Uh, he's probably drunk. You're going the wrong way! What? You're going the wrong way! He says we're going the wrong way. Oh, he's drunk. How would he know where we're going? Yeah, how would he know? Thank you. Thanks a lot. Terrific. Thank you. <laughs> what a moron. You're going in the wrong direction. You're going to kill somebody. You know, I got to be honest. With, I got to be honest. With you. I, by nature, I tend to want to be a people pleaser. I, I want people to come around and, you know, I want to love people. I want them to like me. You know, yeah, I just, there's something in me. Some people don't care. I don't care what anybody thinks about me. I don't care. I do. And yet I picked a message to preach for the rest of my life, the centrality of the cross. But I feel like those people on the other side, you're going the wrong way. Please turn around. Make some different decisions, you know. You're going to reap what you sow. I'm just, that God's, God's inevitable wrath, God's passionate emotion for what you're causing in your life and those around you, turn the other way. And they're like, ah, they're drunk. Didn't they accuse them of being drunk, the first sermon, Peter? And then they came Pentecost, and they're all filled with the Spirit. They're drunk. They're, what morons? How do they know where we're going? They don't know my life story. That, I thought that was a perfect analog. We're the, we're the P, I feel like the guy on the other side. You're going the wrong way. You got what, what an idiot. You feel like that. And yet, you're, you cannot. We cannot make the cross void. Because when you understand the cross, you understand that God 
had to out of his nature, and we'll see a little bit of this next week, he had to bring justice to us. This whole idea of substitutionary death, and we'll talk a little bit about that next week. Look, I I can't say I understand it all. I mean, there's some tremendous guys. I'm going to close with this thought. Uh, John Stott, I know some of our precious people, the Ames, actually got to sit under his teaching in London. John Stott's one of the greatest. I think he's still living. I think they even told me he was still living. Uh, Forgive me for not actually knowing that. John Stott wrote simply The Cross of Christ. It's one of the greatest books on the cross that you'll ever read. And and often when I talk about the cross, I'm drawing from his insight too, uh, coupled. But listen to what he says. He says, the picture may be shocking, but its meaning is clear. God cannot tolerate or digest. And that's why the Bible at times talks about God vomiting. You know, when Je- remember when Jesus said, I wish you were hot or cold, but if you're lukewarm, I will vomit you. you we, the wor- the, God's not literally vomiting. You say, well, I can't believe you're talking about this in church. No, the Bible talks about God's not literally vomiting, but he cannot digest sinfulness. He lives in perfection, right? That's why he told Moses, don't even come near, tell the people not to come near the mountain. If they do, they'll die immediately. We'll see that next week in uh, Numbers chapter 1 as well. You know, don't let them come near the congregate. Don't let them. Surround them by Levites. Don't let them because they'll die. Man cannot see God face to face and live. We don't understand. It's not that he's just going to be, all right, now get out of my presence. I don't like you and I'm going to kill you because you came into my presence. I think it's a combustible thing. If you're a fallen person and you've not been, you know, there's not been a substitute in that justice and you've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ... If you don't have those kind of wedding clothes on, then you, you truly, if, if two powerful forces come together, man and God, who thinks going to win? I mean, you'll, I, I just think we implode in the presence of God because of his holiness. So he said he can't even digest sin and hypocrisy. They cause him not merely distaste, but disgust. They are so repulsive to him that he must rid himself of them. He must spit. Or vomit them out. And he uses other metaphors like God is higher than I. The, the earth is his footstool. What he's trying to do through these metaphors, through the text, is trying to say God's way there and we're way down here. We're very separated. Jesus is the link to bring that, that unison together, that unity together. Listen to what he goes on to say. These notions are foreign to modern day people. And it's just a fact. The kind of God who appeals to most people today would be easygoing in his tolerance of our offenses. He would be gentle, kind, accommodating, and would have no violent reactions. Unhappily, even in the church, we seem to have lost the vision of the majesty of God. There is so much shallowness and levity among us. Prophets and psalmists would probably say of us that there is no fear of God before their eyes. In public worship, our habit is to slouch or squat. We don't even kneel nowadays, let alone prostrate ourselves in humility before God. It is more characteristic of us to clap our hands with joy than to blush with shame or tears. Look, there's nothing wrong with a celebratory worship and a participatory worship. Don't get me wrong, I don't think that's what he's saying. But it should be balanced with a recognition that we come in here and we're so beholden to Jesus' substitutionary death that 
we do weep over our sins. I still, I, I want to get to a place that I'm so sensitive to being in open rebellion to God that I weep over it, not, well, he'll forgive me. Are you with me? It's an attitude. It's a predisposition. We saunter up to God to claim his patronage and friendship. It does not occur to us that he might send us away. We need to hear again from the Apostle Peter's sobering words, since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives in reverent fear. 1 Peter 1.17. In other words, if we dare to call our judge our father, wow, we must beware of presuming on him. It must even be said that our evangelical emphasis on the atonement is dangerous if we come to it too quickly. We learn to appreciate the access to God that Christ has won for us only after we have first seen God's inaccessibility to sinners. We can cry hallelujah. We can we can party with authenticity only. Those are my words, by the way. With authenticity only after we have first cried, woe is me for I am ruined, which is Isaiah's picture in Isaiah 6. In Dale's words, it's partly because sin does not provoke our own wrath that we do not believe that sin provokes the wrath of God. Look, these are, I know this is challenging. This is a challenging message. I was thinking, I've been, I've been gone a couple of weeks and I want to get back. I just want to love on everybody. This is my way of loving you today. You say, well, love me less, right? <laughs> this is my way of loving you today. It's to tell you that you serve a holy and awesome, pure God that wants nothing but your best. When you sin, he cannot digest it. Yes, it's covered on the cross. I understand, and there is, there is ability to come to the cross on a daily basis and repent, and the lifestyle of repentance. But in light of, Paul, in his letter to the Hebrews, kind of uses the expression, don't trample underfoot again the Son of God. He's been trampled for me. Jesus was trampled on the cross for me. How am I going to put him to open shame again? And again, and again, and again. To live. Well, you know, God just, he'll forgive me. Are you with me on this? Look, I know this is a hard message, but once this gets down theologically in your soul, then when we sing the old rugged cross, then when we sing that he can put our pieces of our life back together, when we start singing songs like that, and that we were a shattered pot and he'll put us back. How did he do it? He did it through the cross. Then we will both worship and celebrate with a simultaneity of also weeping and mourning over our sin. And now, my friends, we are a balanced church. And I don't ever want a friend of mine ever to come and say, well, you know, I think I got this Christianity down because, you know, I saw somebody on TV and it's always just positive and how God wants you just to have a great life and you know, the health, wealth, and prosperity type gospel. Well, God does want to bless you. He does love you. He more than you can ever imagine. But we must balance it with his rever a reverential sense of his holiness. Are you with me? I need at least one amen. amen. Or I'm going to go out of here shriveled up and weak. <laughs> We're going to close with this song. I love it. Uh, we've played it before. Um, called Pieces. It's a beautiful picture of us being shattered 
Because I want to leave you with this. God wants to bring your pieces of your life together. But just remember how that it does not come without a great cost to the sovereign creator himself. Are you with me? This, this did not come cheaply for God. How can he stay authentically God and holy and embrace you as an unholy sinner? He had to send his son. And then he'll pick the pieces of your life back together. Let's close with this worship song and then I'll come back and pray.